Welcome to the Progressive Property Podcast, helping you invest in property for freedom, choice, and profit. You'll learn new, innovative, and multiple streams of property income, whether you want to start, scale, or systemize, and even if you don't have deposits. Good evening, everyone. Kevin McDonald here. Any questions, ask me anything, anything to do with property, anything to do with um, creative strategies, rent-to-rent lease options. I want to spend a little bit of time this evening just helping some people in the community with any challenges or any questions you may have. What are we working on at the moment? Uh, Rent-to-rent still, still looking at rent-to-rent stuff. But what we're doing with landlords is we're offering a profit share rather than guaranteed rent because you want to protect the downside during the the lockdown period. Long term, big demand for rooms still in HMOs. In most areas, the demand will get better once the lockdown starts to come to an end and furlough comes to an end. Big opportunities coming when furlough comes to an end. Uh, I've been on a, a lot of talks the last couple of weeks on Clubhouse. Lots of people asking about what's working well at the moment in property. What about certain areas to invest in? And one thing that was really interesting that came up today was somebody said, is now a bad time to buy in London? because of the, the way the world is. Should they be buying in London now? Should they be looking elsewhere? And it's interesting. The reason they asked was because loads of people are saying, don't buy in London, don't buy in London. The houses could drop, flats have dropped 40 grand and there's a panic about not buying in London. Now, one of the things I've always remembered is somebody told me years ago that um, a Warren Buffett saying, Warren Buffett once said that if the taxi driver in New York says to you which stocks to buy, then you need to get out of that stock immediately. Because if the man on the street knows what stock to buy, you are too late to the the show. And for the last few years, nobody has ever said, should I buy in London or should I not? It's always been a a no-brainer to invest in London. House prices will continue to go up, big capital growth, get great deals, you can add value, great marketplace. But only recently, over the last few months, people have started to question London. That's because the masses are questioning London. Observe the masses do the opposite. Now, I don't even invest in London. I I invest up north. But when when all of this talk has started coming about, should you invest in London? I've actually started to be thinking, hmm, is now a good time for London? So while everyone else is thinking maybe we should avoid London, I'm beginning to think, is it a good time for London? Could now be a good time for London? So just a message in that is observe the masses, do the opposite, do the opposite. We're still doing a lot of joint ventures. Interest rates are likely to go to no, to negative possibly. So negative interest rates means there's probably never been a better time in history to raise money. Private investor money, joint venture finance deals. I've got a, a few JV partners I work with. We buy property. So they fund the deals. I refurbish them. I, man- I manage the refurbs and we manage the property and we split the deals. Now, that's a big, big strategy. It's going to get even bigger in the next couple of years. So raising money will be easier than it's ever been before. Private investor finance. So I do more JVs than private finance. I do a little bit of private finance, but big, big strategy. So you should be reaching out to people now, reaching out, letting people know you're in property, letting them know that interest rates are about to go negative. Big, big opportunity for you to start to look at raising funds. And at low rates, because if somebody's getting negative interest rates in the bank, they're paying the bank to hold their money, then you, you don't need to give them 10, 12% for their money to make it work harder for them. You could maybe give them 4, 5, 
and they're going to protect their money and get a higher return. So that's just some thoughts around property for this Monday in February. 2007, 2008 was a financial crisis. This is more of a, this is a pandemic. So there's not really the issue where the banks don't have funds. Back in 2007, when when the financial crisis started to happen, from 2000 through to 2007, banks started to lend 90% mortgages, 95, 100, 110, all the way up to 120. You buy a 100 grand house, they were lending you 120, 125, even 130 grand on that property. No wonder there was a financial crisis. Now, if you were getting lending at 130% of the value in 2008, 2007, well, that is, and today you're getting 75%. That's 55% more. The banks were lending 55% more money in 2002, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 than they are the last four or five years. So that's why there was a financial crisis. It was, I mean, how could there not have been? So the banks are in a much stronger position this time. They're in a much more stable position. Plus all of the bounce back loans, all of that money, it's government backed. So the governments are backing that loans from the banks. So the, I don't think there'll be a finan- I don't think there'll be a tightening of lending from banks. Banks need to lend money. Banks make their money from lending money. So good deals, good opportunities. I think the banks will continue to lend money. But the key here will be the fact that banks are charging are going to start maybe charging you to hold their money. But not point not one percent at the moment already. That's not worthwhile having money in the bank. You're already starting to see people lend money out privately. So you want to be looking to raise private funding right now. Definitely look to raise it. Bridging loans are probably one of the most expensive forms of finance. And the reason for that is um, with a bridging loan, they'll typically lend you. Now, it depends on the lender. It depends on what type of property you're doing. But let's say you're, they'll lend you, um, you're doing a refurb. So you've got to borrow the money and do a refurb. Now, with a bridging loan, you have to be able to prove you can give them all the money back. You've got to get the money back. Okay. If you're buying a property and then doing a refurbishment, they will typically lend you 100% of the refurb and maybe 70%, 75% even of the purchase price. So you've got to come up with 25% of the purchase price. They want you to have skin in the game. But the bigger challenge with bridging loans is they charge you an upfront fee, maybe 2% to get in. Then they charge you the monthly interest and then they charge you an exit fee. And quite often what they do is they charge you all of that upfront. So if you're doing a 100 grand property, they lend you 75 grand for the purchase price plus all the refurb, but they take away all of their interest. So let's say their interest is 10 grand, as an example, then they'll only lend you 65. They'll take the 10 up front, which kind of defeats the purpose in a way for a lot of deals. So private funding is better because with private investor lending, I did a post earlier today where um, Alex Moyes has just completed. Alex Moyes did a, he won the joint venture finance raising challenge I ran last year. So I ran this seven day challenge in the community and five people got to pitch to myself and Ray McLennan, an angel investor for funding. And I funded Alex Moyes' deal. So he, of his first ever buy to let. Now that property, he purchased it. I lent him the funds. He's just, he's finished the refurb, he's just refinanced it. And on that loan, I lent him 100% of the money. So I lent him 100% because I had first charge security and I was a private investor. I'm not bridging, I'm not a bank. And I also lent it with no fees in and no fees out. So, and I, a lot of my private funders, 
they get good returns. They get like 0.75 to 1% a month, but they, they don't charge fees to get in and fees to get out. And they typically roll the interest up. So you get the interest at the end. So like when I lent Alex the money, I didn't charge him all the interest up front, like a bridging company would. I gave him the funds to buy the house and then he'll pay back the loan with the interest at the end. So it makes it much more achievable for him to do the deal. Now, whether that be private investor funding at 100% or bridging, you need to make sure you're able to pay the loan back at the end. One of the things that's really good is the joint venture partnerships. So people often say to me, why would somebody do a joint venture over a loan? Well, a loan, you have to pay back within the time frame. Often with a joint venture partnership, you agree up front that we'll buy the property. So let's say, Steve, you lend funds for a deal. I find the property, I manage the refurb, I manage the property going forward. You fund the deal. You put your money in, the cash, on refinance, you get your money back out. However, if there's some left in, let's say there's 10 grand left in, then you get all of the cash flow until you've got that 10 grand out, and then we share the cash flow and we share the equity in the property. So joint ventures work on a deal that the best, for me, the best time to do a joint venture is on a deal where there's gonna be some money left in, and the JV partner understands it's about return on capital employed over a period of time rather than just upfront money. A private investor or a bridging company, they want to get all of their money back out on the refinance. So just hope that makes sense, Steve. Just give me a yes if it does. So they're typically the differences and all of them have their place. All of them are good for different reasons. But bridging finance is always the most expensive form of lending. Bridging finance works really well on commercial buildings, larger projects, HMOs. Very difficult to try and do bridging on a single let by to let because the uplift you're going to get, you're going to leave the money in. And when you're starting off in property trying to do bridging and you're having to pay all the interest up front, it's not, the, it's, it makes it difficult as well. So I would say private finance, much cheaper, much more money lent to you out of the overall purchase price. And um, you're dealing with a human being more than a, a company. And joint venture finances, again, you're giving 50% of the property away, but you can get the entire deal cash flow, cash for the entire deal and the refurb. And if, you're, if there's any money left in the deal afterwards, that's agreed up front with the JV partner. So different places for each one. How great is the demand for rent to own and how uniform is the demand nationally as far as you know? Oh geez, Paul Charles, there's huge demand. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal opportunity. Rent to own, the average age of a first time buyer across the country. People can't get mortgages, Chip Paul. Every town in this country, there's people who cannot get mortgages. Everyone who wants to buy a property, anybody who has an, an application for a mortgage from a mortgage broker turned down, wants to do rent to own. They've gone looking for a mortgage and they can't get the mortgage. Massive demand. You, you way more tenant buyer demand than there will be properties. You could, you do an advert for a house for a rent to buy to put a tenant buyer in. You'll have a hundred applications. So how great is the demand, Paul? Put a sign out. Just put one sign up saying rent to buy my home and just see how many people will reply. Get one of these babies put up. Buy my house. Buy my house. Right? There's be huge, huge demand. And the benefit for us is no maintenance, no voids, no management costs, and you're helping somebody become a homeowner. So big, big demand, Paul, for rent to own. Massive demand, every town in the country. And the great thing about that strategy is you can make single let, buy to let work in any town in the country. So where single let, buy to let doesn't work, you can make it work. I'll give you an example. So 
Let's say a single let property rents out for £1,100 a month in an expensive area and your mortgage is £900 a month. So that sounds okay. I've got 200 quid cash flow. So my rent's 1100 My mortgage is 700 But your £1,100 rent, you've got to pay 10%, 12% management fee to the agent. Let's just say 10%. So your 1100 is just gone down 110 quid. So you're at 890 Then you've got maintenance, maintenance, maybe another 100 quid. So you're at 790 But your mortgage is 800 So now you're negative and you're losing money. Plus, you've still got voids. You've got tenant fine fees, all the other costs. But with rent to own, the tenant buyer will pay the 1100 the rent. You, the, you're still paying the 900 mortgage, or the two, so you've got a 200 quid uplift, and the tenant buyer is going to pay a top up on top. So you make, a, where a single let doesn't work, you make it cash flow. And you've got a long-term tenant, no voids, no hassle, and you have a locked-in future purchase price. Phenomenal strategy in areas where, you know, where single let just about breaks even or doesn't make you money. Phenomenal strategy everywhere, but it makes single let work in areas that it would otherwise not work. In fact, you're getting, it's the most hands-free strategy because the most hands-free strategy many people would consider to be single lets. But with a single let, you still have the management, the maintenance, the voids, all of that stuff, the inspections. With a tenant buyer, it is completely hands-free. So, because you don't need a letting agent, you don't need a maintenance team, you've got nothing to worry about on the property. So you can do it remotely. You can do it in various part, different parts of the country. You don't need to be in your area because it's completely outsourced to the tenant buyer. Do you negotiate the rent and terms for our rent to own with applicants or state them when advertising? No, don't state them when advertising. The advertising, in any type of advertising, it's like going fishing. When you go fishing, you want to catch a fish. Now, that ad there says buy my house. Some of my ads just say rent to own. And we'll get 150, 200 phone calls. Now, if I do a sign that says rent to own, most people will just read the word rent. They don't read the word rent to own. And that's perfectly fine. Because the first question we ask them when they ring us up, and this is about building a database of people in your town. You want to get as many phone calls as possible, okay? If you put the numbers on the sign, you reduce the number of calls. I want to make the sign as vague as possible and get the phone ringing. Here's why. The phone starts ringing. Let's say we get 100 people ringing. I guarantee you 50 of them will be wanting to rent the house because they read rent and they, didn't, and they missed the word own. Perfect, because now we've got their name, their email address, their phone number, their details, and we put them on our tenant database. So if we've got rental properties, rooms, etc., we're building our tenant database. We're building our local information. We're saying to them on the phone, we've got a Facebook group. You should go and like it, log in, join it. So we're building our database of tenants. Then the other 50 are rent to own. So they're captured as data. But about 40 of them, they'll want to rent to own, but they won't be able to afford it. They won't, and I don't mean now, I mean even later. So they're on universal credit, they're, they really want to be a homeowner, but they've just got no chance. Because the key with rent-to-own is you, you're not just putting somebody in on a rent-to-own. You're, you're helping them become a homeowner in the future. You're giving them the opportunity to become a homeowner. You need to make sure that you can help them get a mortgage. So out of the 100 calls, we might have about 10 that are decent applicants. 
Those 10 are the ones that we'll take through the full application process in terms of um, showing them the property and then determining which one we will take. So we, and then we talk through the numbers, their affordability, how long they need to buy. So big, big open niche to capture as many details as possible. Because then those details are people that even in a year's time, 16 months time, 20 months time, five years time, you've got those people's phone numbers and email addresses. They might be selling houses. They might be wanting to rent houses. Anytime that we've got a property for rent, we've got a whole database of people we can let know. How was COVID mania altered your plans and strategies? I'll take you back to March 2020. March 2020 when COVID started, well, February. It started in 2019, but in my mind, it's went crazy in February, March 2020. And for the first few weeks of the lockdown, the first lockdown, for the first sort of seven days, I binged Netflix. I did. I binged Netflix. I watched loads of series. I thought the world's over, sit at home, gotta watch Netflix. There's nothing else you can do. No point going outside. You go outside, it's like the walking dead. I'm going to sit and binge Netflix, okay? And I watched all of Money Heist in literally about two days, like literally every series. Good, good, good program, by the way, Money Heist. Watch Money Heist, very good. There were some other good ones as well. I can't remember them all, but Money Heist was the best. Anyway, then I decided to myself, what are you doing? Get over yourself. The world's still moving forward. People still need homes to live in. People still need to go to work and earn money. People still need to keep moving forward. The world's not over, okay? We have to keep going. So what I did was I decided that we just go on as normal. We just continue. So my staff, they didn't get furloughed. They worked from home. We kept the office open, they, as in closed door, but the office open. We were on the phones. We were doing our marketing. Anna, that works for me, one of the HMO officers in the council sent us a message saying, is, this, is it Anna working for you that keeps putting all the signs around for rooms to rent on social media everywhere? And I said, yes, why? She goes, oh, a nosy landlord told us, this is the HMO officer, told us that there's this Anna putting up signs for rooms to rent and her name's not on the HMO register. So they should be trying to stop people like this from doing HMOs when they shouldn't be if they're not registered. And I said, no, it's my Anna. And she said, okay, I'll tell the nosy landlord to not mind, to mind his own business. While he was making, while he was worried about why we were marketing and complaining to the council that we were marketing, what he should have been doing was marketing. But he sits there going, it's not fair that they're marketing. Market then. If it's not fair we're marketing, do your own marketing. If you can't beat us, join us. Market. But no, no, no. He's going to go to the council instead and go, it's not fair that they're marketing. It's business. Business has to go on. So, Paul, how has COVID many altered my plans? It hasn't. We're still filling rooms. We're still filling properties. We're still refurbishing houses. We're still buying property. We're still controlling property. The one thing it has altered, the one thing, okay, is we've changed slightly from guaranteed rent to profit share. We're offering landlords profit share agreements because it's guaranteed rent in COVID when we don't know when it's going to end. That wouldn't be brilliant in terms of the landlord's got a big problem. So why not offer them profit share, where we take a share of the profit? Now, the only reason the landlord's got a problem, by the way, is because they've got their head in the sand and they're not doing the marketing. 
I spoke to somebody yesterday saying they had 30-something percent um, occupancy on their property for the last six months. I said, how are you marketing? She said, spare room. Spare room. Spare room. Really? There's 68 million people in the UK and spare room has 5.4 million um, registered users. So you're fishing in a pond of 5.4 million people when 3 million of them probably haven't logged into spare room in three years. So you're probably fishing to a 2 million population. And in some towns in this country, nobody has heard of spare room. So why are you marketing in the wrong places? So we fill our rooms because we market in different places than just spare room. We market in loads of places. And that's why our rooms get filled. But we target landlords who are the one trick pony and we offer them a profit share agreement and we fill their rooms within a few weeks. So that's the only real thing that's changed, Paul. Mindset, mindset. People still need homes to live in. Everybody on here, where are you living? In a home or in a tree? I think we're in a home, right? We're not living, we're not living in the garden, in the fields. We're living in a tree, in a, in a, we're not living in a tree either. We're living in a house. We're living in, in bricks and mortar. There is a housing shortage, people need homes. Still happening. That's not changed. Not that I'm aware of. Somebody tell me. I've not been outside in a year, by the way. I haven't left this room for the last year, so I'm not sure. Is everybody still in houses? I think they are. So, no, it's not changed. I'm still a property investor, still investing in houses. Rant over. Do you take advantage of tax difference on a limited company than personal? Should I have everything under a company and how do I enjoy the gains at the end as personal expenses and paying a few tax? So, um, I'm not a tax advisor, okay, not a tax advisor. However, I believe you should have stuff in a limited company, but it depends on your personal circumstance because if you've got no income whatsoever, you can earn up to eight grand a year before you'd have to, 12 and a half grand a year well before you pay tax, but eight grand if you're paying yourself a wage before you'd have to pay national insurance. Don't get caught out by the national insurance number, which is just over eight grand and the tax-free allowance of 12 and a half. Between eight and 12 and a half, you've got to pay national insurance if you pay yourself too much of a wage. I would do stuff in a limited company very simply because you've got limited liability, but secondly, you have got 19% corporation tax. 19%, okay? Also, you've got corporation tax instead of capital gains. There's loads of different things. So limited companies for me are always better um, long-term as well, limited companies, because you can pass the shares on, you can sell the shares, you can have a SaaS pot, a pension pot converted to a SaaS, and then you can do contributions from your limited company into your SaaS, and you can do loans back. But if you're setting up your limited company, you should be doing a personal loan into that company. This mobile phone I'm talking into right now, right? This is a company phone. It's a company phone because I'm using it for company work. This laptop right beside me here, this is a company laptop. So is this one here. It's a company laptop. All of these things are company equipment, company stuff, because it's, it's um, limited. This office desk, this is a company desk. So the chair I'm sitting in is a company chair. So those shirts over there, those stripy ones, they're company shirts. But if I was running everything through my personal name, would I be able to claim all that stuff? Not as much. That calculator paid for through the company. So I would run a limited company, but get yourself an accountant, but not just any accountant, not a bean counter. You want to get yourself a property tax accountant, a property tax specialist, but I'm not a tax advisor. So even though I said limited company, I don't, I'm not qualified to give you that advice.
Lot property, is it viable to rent to rent whilst outsourcing the management? And what's the best method to build a power team? Yes, of course it is, it can still work. You won't make as much money, obviously, because you're outsourcing the management, but a lot of people still do that for sure. And what's the best method of building a power team? Let people know where you're based. Yeah, let people know what you're looking for, and then start to build your power team around that area. So find out if you've got a specific area, let's say it's Swansea, post in here, who's in Swansea? You'll get a bunch of people reply. Then direct message them and say, I'm looking to do some stuff in Swansea. Do you know any good builders, plumbers, electricians, estate agents, letting agents? Which ones work rent to rent? Ask, ask lot. Um, lot property. You should use your name. See, here's the interesting thing. How do I build a power team? How do I do stuff? Lot property. People business. You want to write this down? People business. You're not a person to me. You're a lot. A lot? I don't know who you are. How am I ever going to... like? Will Spooner is Will. He's Will. I know Will. He's Will because his name's there. Lot property. I don't know who you are. Uh, I, don't, I don't really get. I'm going to give you a little bit of coaching. I don't really get why people don't use their name. It makes no sense to me. My whole business is Kevin McDonald. It's my name because I understand that property is a people business. People need to know you. People don't. We, you're not McDonald's. Nobody's ever going to go. Oh, Virgin Media. Talk, talk. McDonald's. KFC. Lot property. It's not going to happen. It's, it's not going to happen. Use your name. Use your name so people can go. I was talking to Will Spooner on a live a couple of nights ago. I was talking to Gary Kewen up in Liverpool. Gary's in Liverpool. Good guy, good guy. I, I, was, I was talking to Dean Brindley and Dean's looking to raise finance. Yeah, but lot of, who's lot property? What advice would you give to a 16-year-old school leaver who wants to get into property, has no funds or income, and mother is an, on income support? Oh... I would tell them to get a job in, not a job, not a job, child Paul, but a job in a company, not a letting agents or an estate agents, a job working for somebody who's in property, like you, Paul. So I've got a young kid working in my office at the moment, and um, he might watch this. I don't care. I'm going to, because he deserves to know this. So, young kid on the, the government scheme where they can, you, you give, I don't know what the scheme's called now, but we took somebody on on the government scheme to get them into employment. And when he started, Rob Moore, remember, if anybody heard when Rob Moore and Mark Homer met, Mark Homer gave Rob Moore a couple of books to read. And Rob Moore came back and he said, read them within a day or a day and a half or whatever it was and said, read them, what next? So this young kid started working for me and I gave him two books. I gave him No Money Down and I gave him a HMO book because we've got over 200 rooms. So I gave him um, a HMO book by Wendy Whitaker Large and to read. That was in about April or May this year. So whenever I took him on, it was two months into lockdown, just before the summer. So we hired staff in the lockdown, not reduced staff. Anyway, I took the kid on. He still hasn't read the books. Now, in the interview, he told me he really wanted to get into property. He wanted to build a property business. He was all into property, all this stuff. He hasn't touched the books in almost a year. Really? I mean, he's working with me. He's in our office. He's been given an opportunity of a lifetime and he hasn't even read the book. So Paul, when somebody says they want to get into property, give them some books to read, number one, and see how quickly they come back to you with the book read. But I bet you this, read, read. Because I bet you the 16 year old, check, challenge them. Will the 16 year old read the book in a day? Because they should be able to. 
are in two days. Okay? Will they read it and not want to put it down and read it again and again and again? Will they read it and come to you and say, can I have another one? Can I have another one? Have you got more information? Are they a sponge of information? Or are they going to do what most people do when they buy a book? They put it on the shelf life. So I would do that. And then if they do read the books, I'd advise them to go get a job with somebody like me. And I don't mean me. I mean in your town, somebody who's not a letting agent or estate agents. I see people make this mistake. I'm going to go work for an estate agent so I can learn property. You're not going to learn property working in an estate agent. You're not going to learn property working in a letting agent. Right? Estate agents and letting agents don't teach you how to be a property investor. Most of them don't buy property. They'll teach you how to sell a house for a homeowner or how to do it to make sure a gas safety check and an electrical check is done and to how, show you how to meet a tenant to show them a room and show them how, show you how to take a deposit and lodge a tip deposit in a tenancy deposit scheme or a rent guarantee scheme or something. They're not going to teach you how to be a property investor. So Paul, I would get them to go ask for a job, even to work for free in a company where the owner is a property investor. That's what I'd tell them to do. I hope that helps and makes sense. If you're doing rent to rent HMO and you offer profit share to the landlord, how does that work? So you agree a rent. Let's say, let's say the house can make two grand a month. You know it'll make two grand a month, but you don't want to take on all the bills and all the income yourself. So don't think of it as profit share. You don't need to know what his costs are. What I would say to the landlord, is, to myself, is look, it's two grand a month. I'd be happy if I took zero risk whatsoever, I'd be happy with 300 quid profit out of this deal. So I'd say to the landlord, I'll give you 1400 quid. The first 1400 that comes in, I'll give you that 1400 quid. We'll take on the management, we'll take on everything. You pay the first 1400, you get the first 1400 pounds, but you gotta pay the bills out of that. Everything over 1400 quid, we split 50-50. So if it makes 1500, you get 1450, I get 50 quid. If it makes 1600, you get 1500, I get 100. If it makes 1800, you get, maths now Kev, 14 plus two, 16, and I get two. And if it makes 2000, you get 14 plus three, and I get three. So 50% of everything over 1400, as an example. So you're agreeing a number and splitting everything above that number 50-50. But the landlord has to pay, whatever the number you agree, the landlord pays all the maintenance and all the bills below that number. Phenomenal strategy, absolute zero risk, and absolutely no money needed. And somebody says then, you can't do no money down property. It's impossible to do no money down property. Well, well, I'm not sure about that because somebody wrote a book called No Money Down Property and I think it might just be possible and that's a no money down property deal. I challenge anybody to shit tell me that a profit share is not a no money down property deal. Keep smashing it. I hope this helped. I hope you got some value and I shall see you on the other side. Speak soon, everyone. Thank you.